That's what I'm told. My life is going to change. So I believe them. Um, this morning we're going to be talking about the, the idea of, of home. Uh, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. It's a line made famous in the Wizard of Oz. Uh, and it's really, it's a concept that we, I think, all in our hearts deeply long for. We long for a place in which we can be at rest and at peace, a place where we can feel comfortable and accepted and known and loved, a place where we can, we can dwell and just be, a place that we long for. This is just natural. Now I recognize when I talk about the idea of home, some of us, uh, have, that's a hard concept for us to grasp, grasp because our home environment was unsafe or unstable or difficult and challenging. But when I talk about this idea of home, I mean it in the truest and purest sense. I mean it in a way in which this is the place where you are fully known and yet fully loved. It's a place in which you experience the deepest of joys. It's the place that you would know you would rather, there's no other place you'd rather be. It's the place that you are at rest and at peace. This is what I'm talking about, this concept. This morning, our psalm, Psalm 91, tells us that despite our experience in this world, that such a place exists, and it exists in the shadow of the Almighty. And that's what we get to hear about. So here this morning, uh, God's word from Psalm 91, beginning in verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for I will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in, in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place the Most High, who is your, my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague shall come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and on the adder, and the young lion and the serpent you will tread underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him, because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is God's words. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we come to your word this morning, eager to hear from you, longing for a place to rest our head, a place of peace and comfort, a place where joy uh, is felt to the fullest. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see this, that this place is found in you. Uh, we thank you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. The psalm begins with a simple fact. A simple statement, it says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. 
psalmist then goes on and tells us that this fact is not just a, a concept to him, that it is a real, tangible, personal reality to him. It's something that is desperately true for him. It is something that is personal, that is his. He says, this is my, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. It's deeply personal. It's something that he puts his hope and his life in. It's something that he trusts with everything. Right after verse 2, the pronouns begin to shift. And this is where we kind of get our structure of the Psalms. The Psalms moves from the first person, I, 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 to the second person, you, you, you. So over and over again, we see this, we see this transition. And what the psalmist, I think, wants us to know in changing to these prepositions is that this personal God, this God in whom he considers so dear, can also be your refuge, can be your home, can be our home. And that's what he wants us to see. And I want us to look at this from three, three different points. He wants us to know that this place can be to us as it is to him, first a protected place, a personal place, and a promised place. A protected place, a personal place, and a promised place, but first a protected place. We see this in verses 3 through 8. It's actually made very clear in the dangers that are presented here. He begins by talking about the snare, the snare of the fowler. This was a trap, a trap that was laid out for the birds who were walking along the, the ground. This was meant to catch them off guard. It was often hidden. It was something that they didn't see. Then he starts talking about bigger things. He starts talking about pestilence. He talks about this idea of a fatal epidemic disease, the plague, if you will, something that comes that is so much bigger than you, that is out of control, that is encroaching on your life, and you have nothing, no power over it, and there's nothing that you can do over it. He talks about these two things, small and big, hidden and right in your face, and he talks about this to give us this idea that danger is all around us. Obviously, this doesn't mean that we as people and as Christians that we don't suffer, right? He actually presumes that, that these things are, these dangers will fall upon you, that they will come upon you. And that's where we get our promise. The promise is that he will deliver you in those. When these things come upon you, not if they will, when they will come upon you, he will deliver you from them. And this, this promise, what I think here is what's so powerful about it, isn't um, just that it's a promise that says that we that we won't suffer, but this is a promise that's saying to us that that demonstrates God's willingness. God is willing. And we see this clearly in verse 4. He says, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. We get this beautiful picture, this picture of this bird, this nurturing, strong, resilient, protecting bird who hides its young under its wing, and under the protection of its wing, it absorbs all of the dangers from the outside and protects it, and it takes the very cost of defending onto itself. It's this beautiful picture of God's protection of us and his willingness to move in. I, I think often when we suffer and we undergo trials, the question that when we think about these things isn't uh, often, is God able to help me in this situation? We, we know that's kind of where the complexity of the question can, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why it's so complicated? Because we know that God is able. He has the power and the ability to intervene. Really, when we ask that question, what we're trying to get at is this. We're asking the question, is God willing? Does he care? 
Is he willing to intervene into my brokenness, into my pain, into my suffering? Is he willing to come in and dwell with me? This is the big question. I, uh, this past summer, had a top of a tree fall on my car. It was, my car was totaled over the summer, and uh, thankfully I had insurance, so everything was covered and everything worked out great. But my question for the insurance company wasn't, do you have enough money to pay for this? I assume that they did. <laughs> Maybe I should have wondered. But my question that I really had and what I really wondered is that due to the crazy circumstances of this tree falling on it, will you cover it? Are you willing to cover the cost for this? That was what I wanted to know. That was the question behind it. I think that's similar for us as we're wrestling with trials and suffering and experience. What we get in verse 4 is a, a resounding yes. We see in this picture of this bird, in this covering language, this idea of a God who is willing to draw near and, and so much actually take the cost on himself. How do we know this? Well, we know this really especially as people on this side of the cross through Jesus. How do we know that God was willing to enter into our brokenness and sin and pain? Because he did so through Jesus in a very tangible, real, historic way. He came in and entered into our brokenness and our suffering and our pain, and he endured. He willingly left home, if you will, the perfection and communion with God, his Father, in order to come and dwell in our hopelessness, to dwell in our pain, to endure suffering and rejection and abandonment and even loss. God is willing, and we see that in the person of Jesus. We also see that this protection is constant. We see that, that it is wherever, whenever. And we see that in the objects that we see here. First, in the shield and the buckler that it refers to here. The shield, obviously, is something that a soldier would wear, and it would go with them wherever they went. It was something that took on the damage. It was something that t- took the blow. Then he goes on and starts to talk about night and day. And he talks about these things that come at night and at, during the day and at darkness and at noonday. Really, what he's talking about is constancy. He's talking about time. He's saying that there is no time in which we, don't, we aren't under the protection of God. God is always protecting us. There's no doubt that there are constantly times and circumstances that God keeps us from near disaster by his protecting power. We experience this sometimes. We experience this when we are leaving home, are leaving home to go to work on our daily commute. And as we get five minutes out, we realize, ah, I forgot my wallet or my cell phone at home. And so frustrated, we, we probably say a few things or two, and we're like, why, Lord, why did you make this happen to me? Why did you let me forget this? And then we turn around and we start heading home, frustrated that we're going to be late for work to get our wallet and our phone or whatever it is that we left, and then we return to go on our commute only to find out, only to see a near-fatal car accident on the side of the road, on, on our path. And we think to ourselves, wow, that happened 10 minutes ago. That could have been me, right? It's this reality in which things are, we're always being protected from. There's things that go unseen and unnoticed in which God is constantly protecting you. And yet, when one thing comes your way and one thing goes wrong we begin to to get up in arms about it how could you allow this to happen to me god's protection is is constant there's many dangers that you do not know because he has prevented them 
Thirdly, it's conclusive. It's conclusive protection. It's, it's, when we see this in verses 7 through 8, and this context here is final judgment. You see this here in, here in verse 7 and 8. He says, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. This uh, recompense of the wicked is this idea, this is final judgment talk. This is judgment talk in which surely the, the, the wicked will eventually receive judgment here on this earth sometimes. But ultimately, the wicked will receive final judgment when Christ comes again and he returns and he brings ultimate judgment on the world. He, he, this is when he's going to come. So really this idea here is talking about final judgment. And so the protection that he's offering to us, the protection that he's saying is available to you is conclusive protection. It's protection that is ultimate, that is final, that nothing can change. It's the kind of protection that's spoken about in 2 Corinthians 4.8. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. We are perplexed but not driven to despair. We are persecuted but not forsaken. We are struck down but not destroyed. Bad things may come upon us, but at the end of the day, our hope and our trust is in Christ who protects us and sustains us all the days of our life. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, wrote in uh, one of his commentaries in the Psalms, he gives an illustration of a man named Lord Craven who was in London during the time of a plague. As the plague grew and came closer to the city of London, he resolved to go to the country to escape any, any danger. His coach was ready and hitched and his baggage was packed and as he was descending the stairs, he overheard one of his servants saying to another servant this, I suppose by my Lord's quitting London to avoid the plague that this God of his lives in the country and not in town. What they were pointing out is that God here is obviously sovereign and in control of everywhere and everything and yet this man is living as though he wasn't. Immediately, through this providential sermon of his servants, he realized his, where he was wrong. And immediately, he ordered his horses and luggage to be put away. And we're told that as he continued to live in London, he proved to be remarkably useful among his neighbors. And he never caught the infection. Now, obviously, this is not a call for us to willingly put ourselves in, in, in danger, in unnecessary danger. This is not what this call is. But this is a call for us as Christians who are in the hope and protection of God, ultimately and finally, to take risk. You and I, as Christians, are the most free and protected and secure people. You should be willing to take risk in our lives. This means, this truth shuts us free to move into broken and messy places and relationships. It frees us up to face circumstances that might be confusing or uncertain or even scary for the sake of the gospel. This might mean moving to a dangerous place at the risk and for the sake of sharing the gospel with an unreached people. Maybe this means considering a career change and the risk that comes with that, the financial and emotional and, and all of those things that come with that. Whatever that might mean, the Lord calls us to be people who trust in his protection 
and who take risks, who are free to take care of others and because we know ourselves to be, that we're protected. That's my longest point, sorry. He is, not only is it a protected place, but it's a personal place. It's a personal place. Where do we see this? Well, we see this um, first in verse, verse 2, but we also see this in verse 9. He talks about this as, this is my refuge. Uh, and he goes on in verse 2, and he talks about that this, I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, and my God in whom I trust Again, this is deeply personal language. This is personal first for the psalmist. This was his God. The word here for Lord is actually in your Bibles. You'll see that's in the uppercase L in front of it. This is an indicator that this is the word. For the per- this means that this is the personal name of God. This is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, faithful God who has intervened in history, in the, throughout the course of history, in the lives of Israel, in the life of David, who protected him from Saul as Saul was pursuing his life and as Israel was in slavery in Egypt. This is the God who personally showed up and came in and brought them out of slavery. This is a very personal God, and this is the personal God who the psalmist claimed to know and enjoy. This is Yahweh. This is not someone who he was merely acquainted with or someone that he knew of. This was, this God of his was, was his God. He trusted him with his life, with his soul, with his everything. It was deeply personal to the psalmist and it was deeply personal to Christ. You're probably thinking, where in the world is Jesus in this text? Look with me at verse 11 and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Did you know that the only time Satan, the devil, ever quoted scripture, at least that's recorded in the Bible, was these two verses? During the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, the devil and Jesus are standing at the pinnacle of the temple And the devil says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against stone. It was as if Satan was saying to Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing, Didn't God say to you that you were his beloved son with whom he was well pleased? If he cared and loved loved you so much, wouldn't he stop you from falling to your death? Here, Jesus knew that to put God to the test would prove himself distrusting of his Father God. Instead, Jesus knew deeply that his Father loved him. He knew this deeply because he communed with his Father regularly. He knew what it was meant to to hear from his word and to be at his feet. As it is true for the psalmist and is true for Jesus, I think the psalmist wants us to be true for ourselves. Is this your own personal conviction? Do you have a personal, deep relationship with the Lord? Ray Ortland is a pastor in Tennessee, in Nashville, and he um, was actually the senior pastor at First Pres Augusta sometimes back, and uh, he is a PK. His father was a pastor. Um, and he wrote about five years ago of uh, 10 unforgettable lessons on fatherhood. It's on Desiring God website, but they... And he talks about this, and he mentions some things about his father. He says this. I'm going to read this excerpt. He says, I remember going downstairs early one morning and walking in on my dad in the living room. 
There he was on his knees, his face buried in his hands, absorbed in silent prayer. He didn't know anyone else was up. It wasn't for show. It was real. My dad had a real walk with God, and it never occurred to me to wonder if Jesus was the Lord of his heart or of our home. Dad loved the gospel. He served the church. He witnessed to our neighbors. He even tithed when he couldn't afford it. He set the tone of our home, and our home was a place of joy, honesty, and comfort. Jesus was there. For Ray Ortland Jr., there was no doubt in his mind that his dad shared a personal relationship from the Lord because, with the Lord because he saw it lived out. He saw his dad, he saw that his dad knew and trusted in God's forgiveness because he willingly and openly and honestly and transparently confessed his sins before God. He knew that his dad knew the love and care of his Savior because he longed to hear from his word and hear his truth spoken into his heart day after day. He longed to be in communion with God and through prayer because he knew God was good and desired to hear his hopes and his fears and his longings. And so he cast his prayers to his God. He found himself on his face praying to God day after day. Why? Because it was deeply personal to him. He wants it to be deeply personal for us. We are, um, again not just merely talking about fire insurance here, something that you get and that you just move on to. Salvation is a place that we get to, isn't just a place that we get to enjoy in the distant future, but it's a personal relationship that we get to enjoy now. It's not just about knowing about him, it's about actually knowing him. Do you know him? Is he real to you? Do you stake your life to him? Does the deep personal knowledge of Jesus permeate your life? Is it evident in your life as a parent, as a student, as a worker, an employee, that Jesus is yours? It's a protected place, it's a personal place, and lastly, it's a promised place. We see this in verse 13 through 16. We see that it's a promise and the simple fact that he said it. God said it. You'll notice, starting in verse 14, that there's another shift in pronouns. It's a change from the second person, you, to the divine I. It's no longer the psalmist talking to the reader. It is God talking to his people. He says, I will deliver, I will protect, I will answer, I will be with, rescue, honor, satisfy, and show him salvation Clearly, it is not an earned place. Yes, it requires effort to enjoy the fullness of his promises, i.e. holding fast and knowing and calling to him, but it is certainly not earned. Accomplished by God, hence I will. It is God who is working. It's through his faithfulness, through his spirit, that he works these things in you. Secondly, we know it's a promised place because not only did he say it, but he did it. We see this in Scripture, oftentimes Satan is depicted as a lion. We see this in 1 Peter 5, 8. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to destroy. We also see in Scripture Satan depicted as a serpent. 
We see this um, especially in Genesis 3, but we also see this in Revelation 12, 9, where we're told that he, the ancient serpent who is called the devil or Satan. We have this beautiful promise in this text, this promise in verse 13 that says this, you will tread on the lion and on the adder. This is another word for cobra in some translations. The young lion and the servant you will trample underfoot. How in the world is it possible that we triumph over Satan and sin and death? The key comes when we see and understand that this is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. The promised seed who will come and destroy the head of the serpent and undo the curse of sin and bring about salvation to the world. That's where the key is in this. It's in Jesus. Jesus, the reason why we, this is possible, that we are victorious over sin and Satan and death is because Jesus did it. He did what you and I could not do for ourselves. This is the gospel. Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection triumphed over sin, Satan, and death. Therefore, in Christ's righteousness, we will be victorious over sin, Satan, and death as well. This is a certain hope, and it's a promised place. Because such a place and hope is ours, we no longer have to fear. We no longer have to turn to alternative homes. You know the homes I'm talking about. The places that we seek, where we try to find refuge, our work, our wealth, our status, our relationships, all of these temporary homes that we try to find peace and solace in. What we see here, and that promises all these things, they promise to deliver us and give us security and power and acceptance and happiness. And what we see here is that there's no place on earth that can do that. There's only one home in which absolute joy, peace, happiness, comfort, love, and acceptance can be found. And that is in the shadow of the Almighty One and God alone that is made possible through Christ. And this is our hope. This is our promise. If this is your conviction, then the Lord is your dwelling place. In His dwelling place, you are protected. You have continual access to a personal God, and you have certainty in his promises. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. (laughs) It is balm to our sick and weary hearts. Father, Lord, help us to find hope and peace in you, our home, our true home, our lasting home. Help us to find fulfillment and joy in you alone as we abide in you all the days of our life. Be with us in your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.